As you are listening to our podcast, please remember we are not giving legal advice. This is for informational purposes only. If you need an attorney to help you, please reach out to an attorney within your jurisdiction. May it please the court. My name is Rowan Seferini Hardesty, and together with my co-counsel, Jason Larman, we represent The Appeal of It, a podcast designed to distill Texas Supreme Court opinions, Texas Court of Appeals opinions, and other Texas law to make it all more appealing. Hi, my name is Rowan Hardesty, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Larman, and you're listening to The Appeal of It. Today, we're going to talk about how Texas um, deals with, what do we say? Today's episode is going to be about how Texas law deals with a DWI where no one has specifically testified that they saw the victim. Or the victim? Your turn. Yeah. <laughs> your turn. Today's episode is how Texas law deals with a DWI or an arrest for DWI when nobody has actually seen the person that has been arrested driving while intoxicated. I'm going to turn it to Jason. All right. And to the sort of the foundation of today's case is going to be a case out of the Court of Criminal Appeals from this year, 2023, um, called Espinoza v. State. And in this one, the, the facts were sort of unique. The, um, the way the case got started is there was someone driving past an elementary school around the time of school pickup, and they noticed that one of the cars in the the line that forms outside the school, you know, waiting to go pick up their kids. Someone noticed that there was a driver that was sort of slumped over in sort of an unusual position in the driver's seat. And so they, I guess, were concerned enough that they stopped and walked back over to the car, knocked on the window. May or may not have been because traffic in front of the car had started to move and they just wanted the line to move, but that's where we are. So knock on the window, Finally get the person awake after, you know, a little bit of effort. Um, the person opens the door to the car, basically asks for a ride home. Well, who is it that asked, the, who opened the... the okay. So, <laughs> let's clarify for the, our right. audience exactly yes, who we're lots talking of, lots about. Lots of days. <laughs> so the, the sleeping person in the car awakens, opens their car door, and then asks the person that's been knocking on the window for a ride home. The person who's been knocking on the window who had stopped to just sort of check on this person smells alcohol, can tell that the person's probably intoxicated. Um, they offer to help move the car somewhere else. So they help them move the car out of the way, get them into a parking lot or whatever. Fire department shows up, kind of check the person, make sure that it's not an issue with, you know, diabetes, other health issues, things like that. Kind of confirm that the person is not suffering any kind of health issues. And soon after that, police get there. They kind of do their investigation, determine this person's clearly intoxicated, and then arrest her for DWI. Okay. So... So let me back up just a little bit. So she was legitimately in the car pickup line as potentially as the car pickup line was the car moving was, to... The car was parked at a standstill with car... The, the gear shifter was in park, car was running, and she was asleep in the car. Okay. Now, I think to a lot of people, they would look at that and go, well, of course she was driving. 
But what ultimately happened is that when the trial court heard the evidence during a motion to suppress hearing, they said, well, there's no, there's no, there's not enough evidence to say that she was driving. And it went to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals agreed. Okay. There wasn't enough evidence that she was driving. Now, this is a common issue that comes up in DWI cases. And it really raises two questions and they kind of get conflated and they kind of run together sometimes. And that is, one, was this person the driver, right? We know that the car's been driven before. We know that the person who has a driver's license has driven before. Was this person the driver at the time that we're worried about? Um, this happens sometimes in cases where you have maybe somebody who's been drinking but doesn't want to go to jail or maybe has more DWIs than their passenger. And so when the car gets stopped before the police get there, there's sort of this quiet negotiation on like who's going to take the rap. And they might, believe it or not, they might decide that one person should take the fall versus the other. That's one question, right? Who was the driver? But the second question, and often the more difficult question to answer, is was this intoxicated person who was the driver an intoxicated person at the time they were driving? Okay. And that's where we see a lot more complex questions to try and answer here, both the state having to try and prove it, and for the people accused of DWI trying to prove that those two didn't exist simultaneously. So in a scenario where we're trying to decide or determine whether there's that person had been driving, there's a possibility that the person drove to a location, kept the car on, and then began drinking in the vehicle at that point. And so is that really the question? That is, that is a possibility. And I've seen cases where people got home and started drinking, and then you know police were coming because somebody had called because of their driving and so they found their house or were investigating something else, knocked on the door. And police will look at things like, was the car still warm? You know, they'll put the hood, you know, fill the hood of the car. They'll ask the person if they were driving, what time they got home, if they've had any alcohol, all of those things. That's one scenario, right? Where they've consumed alcohol after the point where they're driving. Mm -hmm. That's a very, I guess, credibility based situation, whether you believe that the person drank more or didn't drink more. Um, the more difficult one is the one where all the alcohol's been consumed. But as I think everybody knows, the moment you take a sip of alcohol isn't the moment where that intoxication kicks in. So in a situation like this, where from the time that they were found sleeping to the time when the police got there may have been 30 or 40 minutes, now we have a question of whether or not their level of intoxication 40 minutes later was their level of intoxication when they originally parked the car, which may have been 10 or 15 minutes before anybody even found them in the carpool line. Right. So that was a very litigated case. The trial court originally found that there was not probable cause and that she should not have been arrested. The Court of Appeals agreed. It went all the way to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And there, they sort of used the evidence that was there to narrow the window down, right? The woman had admitted that she had driven to the carpool line. I don't think there was any real debate about how the car got there. Sure. But then they looked at other factors. So for example, this was a case where the car was in a moving lane of traffic 
and was really only stopped because of the other cars in line waiting to pick up kids. That's a, obviously a different situation than a car in a parking lot, right? So we knew the car couldn't have been there very long. We had witnesses that testified that the carpool line typically formed about 15 minutes before the moment when the woman was found. So somewhere in that 15 minute window or so is probably when the car was driven there. And then we had sort of the sign that she was intoxicated by sort of just the lay witnesses that, you know, the, the citizen that had stopped to kind of check on her. Those together, the court held was enough to kind of pull it all together and say, no, the officer had probable cause to believe at that point in time that she was intoxicated. Okay. Now, not every case is going to have those facts. Right. So how do we use this case? Well, if you're a prosecutor, this is a really good case for you because it gives sort of confirmation to your trial judge that when they look at a case like this, where a lot of us just in sort of regular time just walking around in the real world would go, yeah, that's how the car got there. Clearly she was drunk. There were wine bottles in the car. We all know what this is, right? But when the law looks at the very specific elements that it has to prove, sometimes judges have a hard time sort of applying that common sense layer and making those inferences that we would like them to as a prosecutor. On the alternative, if you're a defense attorney, how do you use this case? Well, one, you need to be aware of it, right? If you have a case where your client was asleep behind the wheel of a not moving car, you need to be able to distinguish this case. And thankfully, there are some facts that really do make it distinguishable from a lot of other circumstances. What are those? We had alcohol in the car, which may or may not be the case. We had a very short window of time where she could have been driving. And we had a car that was in a moving lane. So all of those things together make this different from the person who falls asleep in a parking lot or the person who maybe has a little bit to drink makes the decision that they're not okay to drive and just parks their car and because it's hot in Texas, maybe they just wanted to run their air conditioner, things like that. There has to be some way for you to show that the intoxication and the driving were not happening at the same time. And then I guess the, the third prong is what if you're not an attorney and you're just trying to sort of learn from this case what you can. First, don't drive drunk. Don't do that. Second, definitely don't drive drunk in the carpool lane on the way to pick up your kids from school. It's not worth it. Find them a ride, get help for your drinking problem. Don't drink and drive during the day. Or at night. <laughs> well, yes, just don't do it. It's not worth it. And then the third is, if you have a situation like this where there are facts that are very bad for you, you probably should consult a lawyer. So I just had a couple of questions. Okay. Um, you talked about it being on a motion to suppress. Yes. So how does that factor, did this actually go to trial or was it appealed from the motion to suppress? So this was appealed from the motion to suppress, which is a pretty common thing, especially when the primary fight is about whether something legally occurred correctly in the phase leading up to sort of the final sort of end of the investigation. Okay. So, so first, what is a motion to suppress? 
Oh, you're going all the way back. Because we okay. were talking to people that may not be lawyers. All right. So a motion to suppress. We may have covered this in one of our others. Maybe. Already. We could just so quickly do it now. A motion to suppress is where you basically go to the trial judge and you say some of the evidence or all of the evidence in this case was obtained in violation of the law. So it might have been in violation of the Fourth Amendment. It might be a confession that was obtained in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Somehow there's evidence that fell into the hands of law enforcement that legally they shouldn't have. So then the way you address that is you tell the judge that they need to look at whether that evidence was obtained lawfully through a motion to suppress. And if the judge agrees with that motion, then that evidence becomes inadmissible. So here, mm -hmm. the judge agreed with that motion. The trial judge agreed with that motion because they felt that the officer didn't have probable cause to make the arrest. All of the evidence that was obtained after that, maybe there was blood, mm -hmm. maybe there was a breath test, whatever it was, all of the evidence from the point where they chose to arrest her going forward was suppressed. And you, you essentially already had a judge saying you didn't even have probable cause. You're never going to get to beyond a reasonable doubt because you didn't have probable cause and nothing you got after that's going to help you. Okay. So then the Court of Appeals said the trial court was right. Yes. And then the, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, not the Texas Supreme Court. Right. Um, they said, no, you guys are all wrong. Yes. Ultimately. All right. So it was actually the state that appealed this. From the, yes. Okay. Which is yeah. that typical that the state would appeal? It's not. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the state has sort of a, a broad set of resources to help them prepare for cases. The second is the state should be dismissing cases that they definitely would lose, right? If the state identifies a case where the interests of justice don't support prosecution, the state should be dismissing those cases anyway. But the third is that the legislature has very narrowly defined where the state's allowed to appeal. Okay. This happens to fall under one, which is that a pretrial ruling on a motion to suppress is something the state's allowed to appeal. Okay. And so um, ultimately, when it came back down, was it remanded to trial? to actually have the trial occur? Or do we even know if the trial has occurred? So this was very recent. Um, at this point, when we're filming this, it was only a few months ago. My, my sense is that typically in that situation where they've chosen to do a pretrial motion to suppress, they've chosen to appeal it all the way up, more than likely they're aware that if they lose the motion to suppress, all of that post-arrest evidence comes in that they're most likely not going to be successful at trial. Okay. Don't know the facts of the case. They're not part of the opinion. That's quite often what happens. And so the, the motion to suppress sort of becomes the operative move there. Doesn't mean it has to be that way. There are definitely things that you can do after that point. Quite often, if you know you have multiple areas you can fight, the most efficient way to do it is to wait, do them all as part of the trial. You can have a motion to suppress sort of intertwined with the trial. That way you can sort of consolidate it all into one, do one appeal instead of potentially having to do multiple appeals. Okay, so if this case does go to trial, can that motion to suppress be brought up again prior to the trial starting or during the trial? 
So that's, it depends. Um, on the one hand, if the trial judge has the same set of facts, then the trial judge needs to make the same ruling the Court of Criminal Appeals told him to make. So unless the facts change, trial court shouldn't be changing the outcome from what they were told, right? You don't get to sort of keep trying to convince the judge that, that they should ignore the Court of Criminal Appeals or whatever, and there's, there's rules about that. There is a possibility that maybe the jury doesn't believe certain things, and that takes us down sort of a whole other avenue that maybe we'll cover in another episode, which is what do you do in a situation where the jury needs to decide whether to believe what the officer said versus what maybe an eyewitness said or what a defendant says? What do you do when you have a disagreement about who's being truthful? And how do you address that? How do you get that question in front of a jury so that you can sort of circumvent a judge that may not be very favorable to you or things like that you may feel like maybe isn't equipped to listen to the same things that a juror might listen to how to, and how to do that. Okay. All right. So ultimately, we don't know what the outcome of this whole case is, but the, the ruling itself from the Court of Criminal Appeals is specific to whether there was enough evidence to show that there was at least probable cause for the arrest. Yes. In essence, in essence the question that was, that was brought to the court was sort of in a vacuum, and that is, was the fact that she was found asleep in the carpool line, couldn't have been there for more than 15, 20 minutes before they found her, um, had alcohol in the car, all of that. W were those specific facts enough that an officer correctly arrested her? And then everything else sort of falls in line behind that one way or the other on whether that was the correct decision by that officer to make that arrest. Okay. All right, well, this sounds like a case that we might want to follow and see if it actually goes to trial and then eventually see what the rulings are. I'm assuming they'll probably send it to a jury. Um, Potentially. If they do. And, um, you know, in a future episode, we'll kind of talk a little bit about what probable cause is and um, how typically officers get there and um, kind of see what other criminal cases are out there that seem pretty interesting. Uh -huh. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the appeal of it. As you are listening to our podcast, please remember we are not giving legal advice. This is for informational purposes only. If you need an attorney to help you, please reach out to an attorney within your jurisdiction.